in way of a very quick recap where we find ourselves in our travels through the Gospel of Matthew is a very shocking transition of sorts. We have looked at, over the last many chapters, the life, the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew's presenting him as the King of the Jews, the promised Savior, the one that the prophets had, had pointed to, had foretold, had mentioned and written about. Jesus comes on the scene. Matthew begins with a genealogy because a king needs lineage. He needs heritage. He presents his birth in the unique uh, uh, events of wise men coming from the east with gifts of gold and frankincense. A baby king was born that threatened the powers to be even then. Where Herod the Great ordered a slaughter of all of the, the baby boys in Bethlehem. We have watched Jesus' life. We've seen his ministry We've looked at three different unique sermons that Jesus has given. First, the Sermon on the Mount, this beautiful explanation of the kingdom. And not just the, the, the physical kingdom, but a work that God is wanting to extend in our hearts, things that are only possible through regeneration, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. How can you love your enemies apart from the work of God in your own heart? So we've seen Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and then we looked at the kingdom parables, where Jesus continued his teaching ministry, concealing from those that were resisting truth, but revealing to those that were open, the kingdom parables. We've looked at the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus speaks about end times events, things that are coming on uh, the future. But where we find ourselves is a bit shocking because we've been working our way through Matthew presenting the king. He shares a meal with his disciples. He goes to a garden to pray. We understand that Jesus is worried. He's distressed. Luke will tell us that while in the garden, he's so anxious for what's coming, praying three times, Lord, if this cup would pass, may it be nevertheless not your will not my will, but your will be done. He sweats great droplets of blood. The king ends up being betrayed. It's shocking. As you're working your way through the gospel of Matthew, where we find ourselves, that the king of the Jews, this wonderful man, this noble man, this good man, this kind man, Jesus, the man that would teach to the people and would feed the hungry and would perform miracles in liberating those that were possessed or healing those that were lame, restoring sight to the blind, this Jesus, who how could you have any beef against him, gets betrayed by one of his own. And he gets handed into the clutches of his enemies. Following this time of prayer with the Father, as Jesus turns to the resolve of what's coming, he gets up and he tells the disciples, my betrayer is at hand. And Judas, with a cohort, comes into the garden he betrays him with a kiss, and he's arrested. That's where we find ourselves as we approach verse 57 of chapter 26. Moving forward, Matthew doesn't give us the complete chronology or the play-by-play -play of everything that will happen this evening. For context, we are in the middle of the night, midnight, somewhere around in there. Jerusalem is dark. It is cool evening. People are keeping themselves warm, those that are out by fire. The city's asleep. The moon is full. Jesus, from his arrest to around 9 a.m. when he's ultimately crucified, 
will experience six different trials. Again, if you take a harmony of the Gospels, you can see how they all play out. Verse 57, we read, And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Again, you wouldn't know this from Matthew's record. This is the second trial. Jesus, from the garden, goes to Annas, the high priest. Now, if you're like, wait wait a second, there seems to be two high priests, and that's a little funky and odd. You're right, it is. Uh, Annas was the actual bloodlined high priest. And yet Annas had really ruffled a lot of Roman feathers. He hadn't played very well. He had turned, he was the one that had turned, transformed Herod's temple into a den of thieves. He was a wicked man, a shrewd man, a tactful politician, realizing kind of the pressure. He takes a step back, although still remaining high priest, and he presents Caiaphas, his son-in-law, to the Romans as a suitable replacement. So you have kind of the high priest as Caiaphas, but you have a, a, a shadow high priest, that being Annas. Jesus goes to Annas first. He's tried there. And then he's sent to Caiaphas. We're told that Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and he sat with the servants to see the end. So Jesus, going from Annas to Caiaphas, there is an assembly of scribes and elders. We're told that the chief priests, the elders, all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward. Now, I, I want to make a side observation about something that's kind of really unique to Matthew that I think is important. Because Matthew gives us a lot of interesting details to private conversations. Did you notice that? Like, is Matthew in this meeting? No. We're told that this meeting, this second trial, it's Caiaphas, the high priest, it's some of the other priests, it's the scribes. It's a collection of the most powerful men in Israel. Is Matthew there? No. Are any of the disciples there? No. Only Jesus is there. Now, Peter's in the courtyard, but he's not privy to what's happening inside. So how are we getting the account of these things? Now, keep in mind, again, going all the way back to our introduction of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, also known as Levi, he was a Levite. Matthew came from the priestly tribe of Israel. Matthew came from from power. He came from religious prestige. It's very likely that Matthew, again rejecting all of that because he saw the hypocrisy, becoming a tax collector to thumb his nose to dad, seeing truth in Jesus, following Jesus, that Matthew has interesting connections to the people that are there. Whether they're uncles, we don't know, second uncles, cousins, family members. Matthew is connected to the inside. And so we can trust some of the things that he's saying. We can also note that we're told in the book of Acts that many of the priests, as a result of all the things we'll look at, end up, while they might have been involved in these proceedings, end up seeing the error of their way, and they end up repenting and following after Jesus. The resurrection ends up changing a lot because it was so obvious, so known, so seen and accepted that many of the men in the room would become Christians. It's an amazing thing. There's likely two men in the room that were already closet believers. 
again, it's circumstantial, but we have Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, who in John chapter 3 comes, the famous Nick at night scene, where he comes to Jesus and he asks relevant questions. What must we do to be saved? And Jesus talks about being born again. Now, whether or not Nicodemus is a believer at this point or not, we're not sure. But he's definitely interested. He's a man with insight. He's a man connected. We also have another gentleman, a friend of Nicodemus, who's equally connected, Joseph of Arimathea. In fact, it's Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, that end up petitioning Pilate for the body of Christ so that they can give him a proper burial. A rental space, so to speak, in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And so when we're reading these things and we're getting insight into private conversations, know that whether it's from Matthew's connections or Nicodemus's recollections or Joseph of Arimathea, we have credible sources that are relaying how these things play out. And they're honest right up front. You can see them talking to Matthew. Hey, they were trying to build this case. They want to destroy Jesus. They need to figure out some legal loophole. And they're trying to bring in false witnesses, witnesses that can point to some act, something that he's done that would be worthy of them justifying an execution. And yet the, the, the evidence is that they found none, those first three words of, of verse 60, but found none. Again, the reiteration here, uh, there, this is a kangaroo court that's failing. Goes to Annas, goes to Caiaphas. But at last, two false witnesses came forward, and they said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now, this is a contortion of what Jesus has said earlier, where Jesus is speaking of his body. And yet they're saying, well, this man wants to destroy the temple. So the high priest rose and he said, to Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. How hard is that? Self-control. To keep silent when you're being lied about. And when your words are being twisted against you. Have you ever had such an experience? <laughs> you ever been lied about? Ever been slandered? Ever had somebody take your words and twist them? But they mean not what you said, what you intended. You know, when you look at the totality of what Jesus experiences, you know, you can work backwards in, in, in the levels of horror. You know, a crucifixion. It was barbaric. The scourging. It's amazing he survived it. The beatdowns that he took even before that. But just the words. You know, some idiot once said that sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt. And he was a moron. Because isn't it true that some of your deepest wounds, some of your, your rawest scars come from words? That you would rather get punched in the face because that heals much quick, quicker? Here's Jesus being lied about and he's being slandered. Who were these two false witnesses? Were they also people that knew Jesus? He's already experienced a betrayal by Judas. And then he's experienced a denial by all the other men that fled, that ran. And he's already had to clean up Peter's mess, the emotional anguish that Jesus goes through. He's being falsely accused, 
but he keeps silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. So he's evoking some Old Testament rites. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And so Caiaphas gets right to the point. We want to know, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Now for those that ever want to claim that Jesus made no claim of deity, you have a problem with this passage. In the midst of a kangaroo court, this twisted up trial, Caiaphas, I put you under an oath. You need to tell the truth. Are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Are you the one that the prophets have foretold, have prophesied of your coming? Are you he? Now, this had always been a conversation, hadn't it? Going all the way back to the beginnings of Jesus' ministry. With John the Baptist, the intrigue was what? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah sent? Are you one of the prophets? You see, they understand that God is doing something, and God is using these men, and this has always been the debate. Who really are you? And Jesus, he pulls no punches. With the false accusations, he keeps silent. With the affirmation of truth, he speaks loudly, knowing it's the answer that Caiaphas wanted. It is as you said. Nevertheless, man, to have been a fly on the wall for this. I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, there's a subtle thing that Jesus does here. Because they want to know, are you the Son of God? Right? And Jesus says, it is. I am. But then he refers to himself using another phrase, the Son of Man. And in doing this, Jesus is invoking a very particular phrase that these religious leaders would have understood, and Jesus begins to connect some dots they might not have. See, they were looking for an earthly king, a Messiah, someone to lead a revolution. Daniel sees the manifestation of that man's ministry in a much larger context of judgment and power. And in doing this, Daniel, unique to Daniel, takes the phrase son of God and he, and he twists it to the reference of the son of man. You can find this in Daniel chapter seven. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you, yes, I am the son of God, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, but hey, guess what else I am? I'm the son of man that Daniel wrote about. And guess what, Caiaphas? The day will come, and, and notice the language, you will see. Hey, I'm going I'm to say something. Right now, you're the judge, and I'm on trial. But bucko, the day's going to come where these roles get reversed, and you will see the Son of Man and power on the clouds. Tread carefully. Then the high priest tore his clothes Again, I won't bore you with the details, but this was, this was blasphemy by the high priest. He was instructed in Leviticus 21.10 not to tear his clothes. And so we already see here um, this, an out of control, an unbiblical type of thing. He tears his clothes and he says, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witness? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? 
And they answered, so he wants the advice of the rest of the men that were gathered. They said, he is deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ. Who is the one who struck you? The conclusion of this tribunal is that Jesus has committed blasphemy. He's committed blasphemy against the temple by saying that he was going to tear it down, which was not true. He's committed blasphemy by claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God, which was true because it was true. And now he's claimed even further blasphemy by being also the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel. These men, they tear their clothes. He's deserving of death. Blasphemy. They have a problem, and there's two problems. One, this is an illegal trial. According to the law and, and, and the additional rabbinical writings, a trial of death had to be conducted in daylight. They're in darkness. So we'll see another trial in the daylight, in morning time. So even though they condemn him to death, he's deserving of death, they now have to take this to the full Sanhedrin, which will be the third trial. And the process, again, this out-of-control scene, high priest tearing his clothes. We're told in another account that they put a bag over Jesus' his head. They, they spit in his face. They bag him, and they begin to beat on him. And, and the unique brutality to that is that when you can't see a punch coming, your natural reflexes aren't available. If I go to rear and punch you and you see it coming, just even in a reflexive sense, you'll tense up to absorb the blow. Your body will rotate away to, to, to lessen the, the extreme uh, impact. But if you're bagged and you can't see what's happening, not only have you been spat in the face, which is this insulting thing, they bag him and they begin to beat on him, open-handed and closed fists, and they mock him. Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? The grand irony is Jesus knew exactly who struck him. Now, as this is happening, Matthew shifts the scene. Peter sat outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl, the old King James calls her a damsel, came to him and said, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. Now, these big homes in this time in Jerusalem, they had these outer courtyards. And so, you know, the power brokers were allowed inside. The bystanders would be milling around on the outside. The servants of the home, those that were involved in, in keeping the facility, whatnot, would be congregating. Again, it's the middle of the night. They're likely fire pits. They're keeping warm. Peter is hanging out. He's hanging around. Now, he was there when Jesus was arrested, and he made a bit of a scene, so he garnered a little bit of attention. He cut off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Jesus had to reattach ear to head. There's some boldness, some tenacity to Peter. Don't forget, Peter has made the comment, I won't, I won't bail. They, the rest might. I'm not going to. So Peter is, is falling behind. Why is he falling behind? Not really sure. Does he want to just see how this unfolds, how it plays out? Is he looking for an opportunity? But as he's standing there and he's trying to be incognito, this little servant girl comes up, says, wait a second, I recognize you. You're with Jesus of Galilee. But Peter denied it. Now don't forget that Jesus, in response to Peter's vibrato, has told him, Peter, Peter, 
Not only will you deny me tonight, but you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter, not going to be me. And here he is, he denies it. Before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out into the gateway, so he's finding another place to chill, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, she's a little bit more definitive. Now, on a side note, the testimony of women in this culture wasn't admissible. So Peter could have just completely skirted this. She's a little girl. She doesn't know what she's saying. But he, but he denies. He denies. And he's verbal. And we'll, we'll see a little bit of the intensity. Hey, this fellow, this guy was with Jesus. But again, he denied. Now he denies with an oath. I do not. He says, I swear to you, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Again, the Galileans, because the region of Galilee was about a 50-50 mixture of Jews and, and Greeks or Gentiles. The Jewish dialect, there was, there was a bit of a country twang, to use a parallel, to the way a Galilean spoke. Wasn't, they weren't as educated. They didn't come from an, a, an upper class. They had more of a, of a blue-collar uh, twang or, or just their, their vernacular. You could tell when someone was from Galilee by the way that they talked. And so Peter twice here, here is denied. Two little girls come up, and then everyone kind of around is like, wait a second. Hey, you're the guy with the dagger. Your speech, you're from Galilee. Like, what else? Like, of course it's you. And Peter began to curse and swear. Peter starts cussing out little girls, saying, I do not know the man. And it's emphatic, he's repeating it. It's, this is a scene. And then what happens immediately? A rooster crowed. Luke tells us that in the same moment, Peter's eyes connect at a distance with Jesus. Busted. Now, now I, something I didn't really know or, or never really thought of until I was prepping for this morning. The, the presence here of a rooster is quite interesting. Because a rooster was um, unkosher. A, a rooster was an unclean animal in regards to the Levitical law. And so in Jerusalem itself, uh, chickens, roosters, they were, they were viewed more of like rats. They were kept out of the city quarters. They didn't want them around. Again, they were unclean. This is Passover. You didn't want to come in contact. How a rooster got here? It's the ninja rooster. You know, God has ordained this rooster for such a time as this. From the foundations of the world, you have a job, rooster. The sun sets. He's like, when it comes up, I'll be ready. Incognito, he makes his way into the city. Where is this Peter guy? First denial. Well, that's one. Rooster's counting. He's got three fingers. 
two. And then the third one comes. He's like, this is my moment. And the rooster crows. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus. I'm sure he did. Because it was like that night. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Bitterly. He wept bitterly. Well, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. This is Matthew in two verses summarizing. Again, the morning. So the rooster crows gives us a chronology. It is morning. So the sun is rising. This now makes it legal for the Sanhedrin to formally gather to confirm the early conviction of Jesus. Jesus goes from Annas, the shadowy high priest, to the public high priest Caiaphas. He's condemned to death. They need the stamp of approval from the Sanhedrin. This is what occurs in these two verses. So the Jews have decided that Jesus needs to die. They have a problem. In roughly 6 AD, the Jews revolted against Rome, and as a consequence, the right of capital punishment was revoked. The Romans, just as a general governance strategy, while they might have been in charge, they allowed a little bit of, of, of local jurisdiction. They allowed locals to rule the people, kept people at, at bay, gave them a little bit of control. You still had to pay taxes. You were still under the thumb of Rome, but you were allowed to kind of govern yourselves as long as you kept the peace. But there were consequences if you failed to do that, and one of them was revoking the ability of the Jews to execute their own. Now, they don't always obey this. We'll see this in the book of Acts, where they end up stoning Stephen to death. But during that time period, there's not a big Roman garrison, a big Roman uh, uh, presence in the city. They could kind of get away with it. And this situation, because of A, Jesus being as high profile as he is, the, 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 the population of the city swelling to where it is, bringing in the Roman influence and the Roman eye, the Jews, while they want to convict and, and condemn Jesus to death, they can't carry out the deed. They have to have the Romans, which is a fascinating thing because if the Jews could have carried forth the execution of Jesus, then we would have prophetically had a bit of a problem because the way that the Jews enacted capital punishment was through stoning. They stoned people to death. And yet you go back to the Davidic uh, Messianic Psalms that, that referenced the piercing of the Messiah it was, it was predicted that Jesus would be, even before the idea of crucifixion existed, Jesus would be crucified. He wouldn't be stoned. In fact, not a bone would be broken, which is very hard to do if you're stoning someone. Think about that. And so God has kind of orchestrated all of this. Jesus had to be crucified, not stoned. And so in 6 AD, in God's providence, their right of capital punishment gets revoked. Now, it's, it's a legend. It's hard to say if this is true or not. But that when this happened, the high priest ran through the city saying that the promises of God had failed because God had said that the scepter should not leave Jacob until Messiah has arrived. It's the end of Genesis. And so they're saying, well, the scepter's now been removed because our right of capital punishment is gone, but the Messiah's not here. The word of God has failed. Oh, but they didn't realize that had the Messiah come, 
Yeah, in 4 BC, Jesus was born. And there was a great delegation of wise men to make it clear that the king had been born. Should have been an indication when capital punishment was revoked that the Messiah had to already be present or on the scene. So here they are. They want to execute Jesus. They can't do it. They need Rome. So they hand Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, again, just to kind of give you the full picture, Pilate will do a bit of an interrogation of Jesus, an initial kind of a cursory uh, review of the case. Upon discovery that Jesus was from Galilee, Pontius Pilate's like, sweet, I'm out. Because King Herod happened to be in town, and Herod had jurisdiction over the area. So he's like, I'm going to send you to Herod. I'll let Herod deal with you. Jesus gets before Herod, will not utter him a word. Herod gets frustrated because he wants to see a magic trick. Jesus doesn't oblige. So Herod's like, forget this, back to Pilate, sixth trial. So he gets kind of hacky sacked from Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate. Now, as some of this is happening, we read, verse 3, that Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful. He felt bad about it. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said to him, what is that to us? You see to it. Now, now we don't know exactly when this reckoning happens. We don't know within the chronology exactly when Judas comes to this, this revelation. Could it have been immediately after the arrest in Gethsemane? Could Judas have hoped that Jesus would have mounted some resistance? That he's shocked to see that, that Jesus surrendered himself to the Romans? Could it have been at that moment that Judas is like, I have made a mistake. And he feels bad about it. He's remorseful. And he goes back to the high priests that the scene occurs. Could it have been once Jesus gets condemned to death that Judas has this, this epiphany? Could it have been during the scourging? Could it have been after Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished? We don't know exactly when. But Judas comes to the point that he's like, I've made a mistake. A mistake I feel really bad about. And he wants to absolve himself. And so he had, he had gained 30 pieces of silver in his betrayal, his role in the deed. So he comes back to the high priest. He comes back and he says, take the money. The man's innocent. This is not what I intended. Now, again, Matthew includes this to, to acknowledge that even Judas, Jesus' betrayer, came to the realization of what? Of his innocence. That there's no party at play here that doesn't watch this happen and take a step back and think that this was good. Even Judas comes to the realization, Jesus is innocent, this is not just. But the chief priests, they don't want his money. And so Judas, verse 5, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful 
to put them into the treasury. Interesting, it was lawful to take those 30 pieces out of the treasury to pay Judas, but now it's like, well, that's blood money. We don't want anything of it. Because they are the price of blood, so they consulted together and they bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. As Matthew does, he places these things in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, uh, uh, pierced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Before we wrap up a commentary of Judas, just to address one interesting tidbit, um, Jeremiah didn't say this. This was not Jeremiah. In fact, this was Zechariah, Zechariah 11. And, and there's a bit of, of controversy about that reality. And, and let's admit the fact, this was not written by Jeremiah. This was not written by Jeremiah. This was written by Zechariah. That's a truth. There's no way around that. There are a few logical and even plausible explanations for why Matthew would reference it this way. Could this have been that though Zechariah wrote it, Jeremiah, who was a contemporary, said it? And that Zechariah is recording the words spoken by Jeremiah. It's recorded in Zechariah, but it was spoken by Jeremiah? Sure. Can't say it for sure, but it is plausible. Also an interesting theory is that because of the way that scrolls work within the canon is a lot of the minor prophets ended up being included in the major prophets to make one bigger scroll. And it's thought, it's believed that Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, because of the time and the fact that they were contemporaries, that the prophecies of Zechariah were included in the scroll of Jeremiah. And thus, written by Jeremiah the prophet, the explanation could be that it is the part of the scroll of Jeremiah that Zephaniah wrote, and that Matthew is just kind of referencing this, because if you were going to pull the quotation, you'd go pull Jeremiah out, and then find the part of Zephaniah that references it. That's also a theory. Don't have an explanation uh, that's definitive, other than we can acknowledge the controversy, but we can also present the reality that Matthew's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so that there are explanations that can be rational to these things. Judas. Can't, I can't leave Judas without saying he's, he is maybe one of the most tragic characters in Scripture. He really is. And there's so much about Judas that we just we don't know that's only left to speculation and duendo. I mean, you want to talk about names that got ruined, you know, Judas at the time was probably a pretty popular name. Like John, James, Peter, you know, Simon, Judas, little Judas. It's like Adolf now. You can't name your kid Judas. Please don't name your kid Judas. Synonymous with betrayal. And not just a betrayal, the greatest of all betrayals. But there's something about Judas that we really should take to heart because the man provides us a very interesting warning, doesn't he? Here is a man called by Jesus, rolled with Jesus. His best friends were Jesus' best friends. 
He's called by Jesus his friend. He's a friend of Jesus. He's in ministry with Jesus. He hangs out with Jesus, all of his friends, his community. He forsook all to follow Jesus. And he ends up in hell. Why? Because all of those things don't count. The only thing that does is the relationship you have with Jesus, is he your Savior or not? For Judas, he calls him rabbi, teacher. Judas wanted him to be king. Friend. How provocative that you can be the friend of Jesus and go to hell. You must accept Jesus for who Jesus is. Savior. The Savior of sin. And the reality is that we know that Judas never accepted that because he was willing to forgive his sin, even this one. But he didn't. And he was sad and he was sorrowful. And he was bummed out. And like Peter, he probably wept bitterly. But his end was destruction. As you know, it's very hard to tell if someone's really sorry or not. You know, have you, you know, anyone that gets caught in a sin, and we have in our story two men here that have both been caught in a sin. You have Peter who's been caught in a sin. You have Judas who's been caught in a sin. And they both are filled with remorse. Peter for his denial. Judas for his betrayal. Correct? How can you tell the difference? When your kid comes to you busted for doing something wrong, and they're crying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I won't do it again. How do you know they're really sorry? The Bible tells us, again, there are two types of sorrow, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. They both look alike. But the one that you know is godly versus the one that's worldly results on what comes after you feel sorry and you cry about it. What comes next? It's called repentance. The Bible says the godly sorrow leads the man to repentance but worldly sorrow to destruction. On the surface, Judas and Peter looked the same, but Judas wasn't willing to repent. And what does repentance look like? It's coming to Jesus and dealing with it. Instead, he ran, and he put a rope around his neck, and he hung himself. To get more graphic, in Acts chapter 1, we're told that he fell headlong and his entrails burst open. It's one of my favorite verses. It's such a positive thought. You know, don't play Bible roulette because you land on that one. Judas hung himself and his entrails came out. What are you saying to me, Lord? But in that dynamic, nobody took him down. They let him rot. And then they took the field, they purchased it, and it was known in that day as a field of blood. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now, in the Greek, the way that this is actually phrased, 
um, doesn't translate very well into English because there's an emphasis on you and the way that it's structured. Pilate is standing there, and Jesus is brought before him. And this is the second time. And Jesus at this point has been beaten up. He's got a swollen eye, spit all over himself, snot in his hair. He's, he's rough already. He's not a big man. He's, he's a run-of-the-mill kind of guy. He's taken a beating. He's hobbled over. He's gimp. And, and, and Pilate looks at him, and he says in the way that you could read it, Are you? <laughs> Are you the king of the Jews? That this is the king of the Jews. What kind of king are you? But Jesus says, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, again Jesus answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus again answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, Matthew tells us, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, understand that Pilate is in a predicament. The Jews want Jesus to die. Pilate struggling with that. Because Jesus is a popular figure, and he's innocent. In fact, we'll see that it was because of their jealousy. Pilate had some intuition here. He saw what was going on, but his number one job is to keep the peace. So he thinks, well, there's a loophole I might be able to employ at the time of the feast. It's a custom. You know, keep on good standing for the Romans to release a prisoner to the people. Maybe this is my loophole. I can circumvent the religious leaders. I'll go to the people. They'll want Jesus. I get out of it. Because then the chief priests can't do anything because I'm just honoring the will of the people. And they can't revolt as a result. So Pilate's thinking, I got an out. And there was this notorious prisoner called Barabbas, who we're told was a bit of a revolutionary. He was a murderer. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. You want to talk about one of those like bizarre verses in all of Scripture? What was that dream? <laughs> really? Again, this has all happened at night. This woman hasn't met Jesus. She doesn't know how this all played. She has been asleep all evening. How does she know Jesus is before Pilate? She has a dream. She wakes up. She's like, oh, no. And she rushes to Pilate. Like, you should have nothing to do with this. I've been tormented. Again, God's not even letting Pilate off the hook. But the chief priests, the elders, persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. And we've got to stop at this point. But you know, I think that sometimes the Jews get a bad rap for the way that the scene plays out. That's not biblical. I've heard, you've probably heard, 
there being a, a parallel between the fickleness of the mob. I mean, a week earlier, just a few days before this, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the whole city erupts, right? Hailing Jesus as the king. Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. And then just so many days later, here we find another mob of people hailing, crucify him, crucify him. What gives? Now note that the way that Matthew presents this and the way that scriptures seem to affirm, again, this is early in the morning. This is not a multitude. And these people are probably unaware of what's really going on. In fact, the motivation of all this, envy on the part of the chief priests and the scribes, Pilate thinking he's got an excuse, a way out. How many people are mulling around? But it's the scribes, it's, it's the religious establishment that get the crowd to what? To chant, crucify him, crucify him. That's bizarre. For the Jewish people to be chanting out for the Romans to crucify any Jew is bizarre and is uncharacteristic. But it reveals to us the brazenness of the religious establishment and how they saw Jesus. You know, religious people today still cry out, crucify him. Religious Christians do the same. You see, Jesus is revolutionary. His very person existed for one reason. You can never be good enough. If you could be good enough, Paul would say, then Christ died in vain. Understand that. If you could earn your way to God, if you could earn your salvation, if you could prove your worth, prove your worthiness, if you could do it, so that when you stood before God, God's like, here's your bad deeds, here's your good deeds, the good outweigh the bad, how most people view, you, you can go into heaven. But it's a false reality. The Bible says none are good, no, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The very person of Jesus screams, you're insufficient. And you can't do it. Which is why God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That those who believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus, the person of Jesus. To accept Jesus, you have to let go of self. To accept Jesus, you have to accept the reality you can't be good enough. And will never be good enough. Which is why you are called to hang out with Jesus. You get to heaven, it's well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. I know you. You're my friend. I'm your savior. You're my child. The religious establishment, religious people have been saying and chanting, crucify him. Because they refuse to accept their own frailty. So Father, Lord, we just leave that there.